Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Lately, things have been very busy and schedules have been a bit unusual with our conference, the Joint Reformation Service, and all manner of busyness. And so it's actually been three Sundays, it was three Sundays ago, that we were last in 1 Peter, where we find in chapter 5, in this portion of chapter 5, that Peter commands humility. He commands a humility on our level, horizontally among brethren, humility towards one another. And then he commands a humility, a vertical humility towards God. And the humility towards God under afflictions is particularly what we have been studying in our two most recent sermons, even though they've been a bit spread out because of other intervening events. Let's read our text, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, and reading through to verse 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In our last two sermons on this, just to give you the most brief of reviews, we looked first at God's mighty hand in afflictions, the power of God to both send afflictions as well as to permit afflictions in our lives. And then we also looked at God's wise hand. Why does God permit and send these afflictions? What are his wise, what are his wise purposes in doing so? And he means to humble us. He has wise and loving purposes as our heavenly father. So I won't review all those purposes. You can go back to your notes or sermon audio. But having looked at God's mighty hand, that God permits and sends afflictions. And God's wise hand, why God sends uh, afflictions. Now we turn more to our duty and response, uh, which is to humble ourselves. Our response, which is commanded in verse 6 from the Apostle Peter, is humble yourselves, therefore. To humble ourselves is the appropriate response to God's wise and mighty hand in affliction. For our outline, we're going to ask two questions, and those two questions are our main headings. First, why do we humble ourselves? And second, how do we humble ourselves? ourselves. Why do we humble ourselves and why do we humble ourselves? In the first place then, if God commands us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, how may we do this? Why ought we to humble ourselves? Why does God command this? Why is it that we should humble ourselves under his mighty hand? In the first place, Because God is stronger than you. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Your humility is relative in part to God's mightiness, his power. If God is almighty, if God is omnipotent, and you choose not to submit, not to humble yourself under his mighty hand, 
then not to humble yourself is to resist him, to resist the mighty hand of God. Why should you humble yourself? Because God's hand is mighty. What else are you going to do? Try to fight it? If it is God's will that you are experiencing such and such an affliction, either by permission or sending, can you, by your own strength, resist or alter the will of God? Listen to this verse that I've quoted many times in other sermons, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13, which says this, Consider the work of God, what he does. Consider it. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who? What God has crooked and has made crooked, you cannot make straight. It is the work of God. If the mighty hand of God puts a, a contortion, a twist, a crook, in your life, can you, by strength of equal and opposite force, align what he has misaligned or make straight what he has caused to be bent? When I was young, one of the great priorities in my life was finding a good stick. Finding a good stick is very important to a boy. <laughs> and in the woods, the sticks are not straight. <laughs> they are not good for spears or arrows, or occasionally they're good for walking. I wanted a straight stick. And so I found one which was unscrewing the handle from a broom, and I was told, you can't do that. That's <laughs> it was perfect. I can't make straight what is not straight. What is bent, what is crooked, I am not able to align. All the more so if God has made it crooked or God has made it bent. So if God sends affliction in our lives that bend things in a way that we don't want them to be bent, we say, no, I, I want to walk this way down the straight aisle to that exit right there, but the path has been bent to take me to this exit. No strength of force can make straight what God has caused to be bent. So why should I humble myself and go through this door instead of that one? Because to do otherwise is to resist God, and he is stronger than I am. Would you dare to enter into a power struggle with God? Have you ever arm wrestled just your older brother? You can't even beat your older brother in an arm wrestling match. You want to resist God and oppose him? His hand is mighty, but it is also wise and loving. Do not resist him, rather humble yourselves. Why should you humble yourself? Because God is stronger than you are. Secondly, why do we humble ourselves? Because God opposes the proud. In the previous point, we're contrasting strength and weakness. God is strong, you are weak. Humble yourselves, you can't overcome him. Here, building on this, we're contrasting pride and foolishness, or God's greatness and man's thinking that he is great, but he is not. God opposes the proud, Peter tells us, quoting from Proverbs. So not to humble yourself is to be proud. If we know that God opposes the proud, then why would we rise up in pride against God? Think of it this way. In World War II, when the Germans bombed London, they did so for a period of over a year. 
But at the beginning of these bombings, or the Blitz, as it's often called, London was bombed for 57 consecutive nights. The bombing lasted a year or so, but there were 57 consecutive nights at the beginning where the Germans were dropping bombs on London. And so during that time, what did the Londoners do? They hid in underground shelters to avoid the danger of the bombs. What would you think of someone during that time who heard the sirens, the air raid sirens, that were warning everyone about an impending attack, the planes are coming, but someone refused to go down in the shelters? And they said, me? Go underground? With all those smelly people? I don't like it. I shouldn't have to do that. It's beneath me to go under the ground into the masses and crowds of people and sit on a cot or the cold, hard ground where it stinks and it's dark. I don't like that. It's beneath me. I'm not going down there. Imagine someone so proud that they won't submit to the temporary inconvenience and unpleasantness of an underground shelter simply because it doesn't suit their standards or preferences. I'll have my butler go clean up the, sh the shelter and then I'll go in there. You have a butler? <laughs> we are like that when we refuse to humble our hearts when God sends or permits afflictions. We refuse to go down into the underground shelter because we don't like it. It's dark and it's wet and it's full of people. Well, what would happen to the person who proudly stands out in the bombing during the blitz. They're going to be demolished by their own pride and foolishness. They stay up there and everyone down below says, you're, you're foolish. Why would you be so ignorantly and stupidly proud? So why should we humble ourselves? To put it very bluntly, it would be dumb not to because God opposes the proud. It would be the height of pride to be proud knowing God opposes the proud. So we ought to humble ourselves, knowing that to do otherwise is only to inflict suffering on ourselves by refusing to humble ourselves. That person who stays out in the bombs is inflicting suffering on themselves because they refuse to accept an alternate form of suffering, namely being in the underground shelters. So also, to refuse to, to submit and humble yourself under God's mighty hand is to refuse the affliction he has sent and to choose a worse one, namely, now fighting with God. And there is sure and certain destruction. Standing out in London in the Blitz is sure and certain destruction. Opposing God is sure and certain destruction because God opposes the proud. So why should we humble ourselves? We can contrast God's power and our weakness. We can contrast God's opposing the proud and the foolishness of being proud against him. In the third place, however, or in addition, why should we humble ourselves? Because there is no other way to God's lifting up. There is no other way to God's lifting up. Peter says something very important, but very difficult for us in verse 6. He says, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice the so that. There is a purpose in humbling ourselves. Why? When you ask why, the answer is because, a purpose or an explanation. Why do we humble ourselves? So that 
at the proper time, he may exalt you. So how do you get to the proper time? Well, it's not by skipping the time, but by passing the time. As we've said before, the way out is the way through. And if you don't go through, you'll never get out. If you want to see the dawn, what's the best way to get to the dawn? Passing the night. And if you refuse to pass the night, you'll never get to the sunlight of the sunrise. If you walk or rollerblade a mile from your house, the only way back to your house is to walk that mile back. You can't teleport. The only way back is to go. And so for us, why should we humble ourselves? Because at the end of our humbling, on the other side of our humbling, is the lifting up. And so therefore, if we refuse the humbling, then we refuse the lifting up. You can't get to the end if you skip. If you tell a child, you can't go out to play until you clean your room, they have two options. They can clean the room and then have the whole day to play. Or they can delay and delay and delay and delay and delay and not clean their room, and therefore delay and delay and delay the playing that comes after it. The only way to get to the joy of playing is to go through the lack of joy of cleaning your room. The fastest way to get to the joy of the outdoors is by doing the work indoors. And the way to be lifted up in times of affliction is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. There's no other way to God's lifting up. People sometimes ask me, how can I learn Spanish? You learned Spanish. And I say, well, I went to school. <laughs> I had high school Spanish, and I had college Spanish, and I've practiced it speaking with people for a number of years. I had to learn it. I, there's no magical way I can tell you, oh, if you just do these three things, yeah, that's clickbait on the internet. The only way to learn another language is to immerse yourself in it or to study it directly. There's no alternative. Tomorrow you can speak Spanish. No, you can't. <laughs> when I was in, in high school, I was wowed, still am, by musicians who could play their guitars in incredible ways with incredible speed and accuracy. So I got a guitar and I wanted to start playing like that. But it turns out you can't <laughs> unless you learn the basic skills that build up to those advanced skills. And no matter how hard I tried as a teenager to just practice the really hard things, I couldn't master them because they're composed, they're built out of all kinds of lesser, small things you have to do perfectly in order to create that perfect sweeping arpeggio that's built out of all kinds of notes that go together to get there. So also, by way of analogy, or the analogies teach this real lesson, that there is a lifting up that God speaks of, but it's on the other side of you humbling yourself. And if you decide to exempt yourself from the humbling, you refuse to humble yourself, you are refusing the lifting up. I'm saying there's no other way to the lifting up other than humbling yourselves. The fact is you can take a different route of not humbling yourself, but the end of it will not be lifting up. So why should you humble yourself? Because God has commanded it, commanded it but also because so that purpose clause, purpose statement, so that at the proper time, 
past the humbling, beyond the humbling, God will lift you up. And he won't lift you up until you've completed the humbling. They don't give you a diploma if you have not completed the coursework. He will not lift you up if you have not humbled yourself. Again, you can take the different path, but it will not lead to lifting up. Why should we humble ourselves? Because God's hand is mighty and he is stronger than we are. Because he he opposes the proud. And to be proud would be utterly foolish. It would be choosing a worse fate than humbly submitting to God's providence. And because by going through the affliction and humbly accepting it, God will lift us up at the proper time. And if the proper response has not been given by us, the proper effect has not been achieved, and God will continue to keep us in that school as long as is necessary to teach us humility. And if we quit the school, we only make our lives worse. In the second place, and we'll spend the rest of our time here, how? If we say, I understand we must humble ourselves. Why should we do this? I understand why we ought to humble ourselves. How may I do it? In what way can I humble myself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt me? Well, consider five things. How do we humble ourselves in at least five ways? In the first place, bring your heart down to your affliction. Bring your heart down to your affliction. So we we begin by humbling ourselves in relation to the affliction itself. If, If the affliction brings us low, under God's mighty hand, we ought to bring our hearts equally low. As low as God has allowed our, our circumstances to descend, that is how far our hearts must descend in humbling ourselves. You bring your heart down to match the condition of your affliction. So we begin with a humility that is relative to the affliction itself. God has brought me this low, that is as low as I bring my heart. But the problem is that we have two possible responses and we usually choose one over the other. Here are the two possible responses. We usually plead our innocence. We usually say that I don't deserve to be humbled in this way. I shouldn't be humbled in this way. The other response is to plead God's justice in permitting and sending the humbling. In the first, we plead our innocence. I shouldn't have to suffer this. In the other, we plead God's justice and say, He is free and just to do so. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the Lord. Which of those two do we often choose? We often say, I'm I'm innocent. Why am I suffering this? I shouldn't have to suffer this. We plead our innocence rather than God's justice. And if you have a mindset of, I shouldn't have to deal with this, or I shouldn't have to suffer this, that's pride coming to the surface, you exalting yourself, lifting yourself up, lifting your heart up above your condition. I'm higher than this affliction. I am beyond it and above it. Now we can make a distinction here between horizontal and vertical issues. Sometimes we say, I shouldn't have to deal with this because what we're dealing with is the result of the mistakes or the neglect of someone else. 
and it's because of their neglect or their uh, disobedience that we are faced with more suffering or more affliction. And so it's true relative to that person, I shouldn't have to do this because you should have taken care of it or you shouldn't have gotten us into this mess or you should or shouldn't have this or that or the other thing. And that's true. And so we can deal with one another on that level of our lives are more difficult because of your choices or your actions, but you can't bring that same argument to God and say, I shouldn't have to deal with this because, oh wait, (laughs) you're the divine sovereign and majesty of all things who is free and just to send and permit us to make our own mistakes and deal with our own messes. So to one another, yes, we can say we shouldn't be in this situation and the other person repents or we, maybe it's not a sin issue but just a, a problem you have to overcome. But we cannot deal with God that way. And the fact is you may be a great help and support to someone else in their distress. In the church, God brings a great number of people together. Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly. And our love needs to be more than words, it's deeds also, as John says, and as Jesus teaches. And so in the church, sometimes you think to yourself, why do I have to help someone else and deal with their problems that are not mine? I didn't cause these problems. Why do I have to deal with their problems? Why is God permitting their problems to enter into my life? But it's so that you can help them. So that you are to them the very blessing. They are perhaps not to you a blessing in that moment, but you are a blessing to them. But if you say, I want to be exempted from this, you're saying, I don't want to love my brethren. So we humbly submit to God who has brought someone into our lives who needs our help. And then we help them without grumbling and complaining. And we bring our hearts down to that condition instead of saying, I shouldn't have to do this for that person. We say, I humbly accept this providence and I'll help them. I'll help them. I love them. I will love them. I will work harder at loving them instead of, I am above this. I shouldn't have to do this. If you if you plead your innocence and say, I shouldn't have to, or I shouldn't be dealing with this, you're going back to the first point and resisting God in pride. Humility comes before lifting up. There's no way around it. So bring your heart down to, the, to your condition or the condition of your affliction. Secondly, how do we humble ourselves? Humbly accept God's timing. Humbly accept God's timing. When do you eat dinner? If you eat dinner between 5 and 6, raise your hand. Come on, more of you eat dinner between 5 and 6. How many of you eat dinner between 6 and 7? How many of you eat dinner between 7 and 8? 8 and 9? Any Argentinians here between 9 and 10? It's a... When you eat dinner is a somewhat cultural thing or family thing. It can also be a, well, I don't get home from work until 6 and then settle in, make dinner, 6.30, 7 o'clock. Okay, some of it's just necessity, but there's also culture. In Argentina, I remember arriving and thinking, are they even going to eat dinner? And then dinner happened eventually around 10 p.m., much to my confusion and my stomach's confusion. I don't, I don't understand it, but... 
when is the proper time to eat dinner? It's a matter of difference. When should Christmas presents be opened? If you say Christmas Eve, then I'm afraid we are no longer friends. <laughs> what time should everyone wake up on Christmas? The children will say one thing, the parents will say something rather different. You see, the timing of things is a hotly debated issue. Well, humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand involves a giant confrontation. Because now we're not humbling ourselves relative to the condition of our affliction. Now we're humbling ourselves relative to God. And the confrontation is between God's timing and our timing. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let me ask you, when is the proper time for you to be lifted up from your affliction? Well, ask everyone in jail, when is the proper time for them to get out of jail? And they'll say, right now. Ask your toddler, how long should this discipline last? Mm, not at all. <laughs> everyone will exempt themselves or let themselves out early from difficulty or pain but to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand means to accept his timing without knowing what the timing is. We simply say, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If it be your will, remove this thorn from my flesh. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, it's not wrong to ask God to bring our affliction to a conclusion. But we resign ourselves, humbly accepting the timing of his choosing. We're going to consider more specifically the lifting up that God gives us in a separate sermon. But we are mentioning its timing now. He sets the length and the limit of our adversity. He sets the length and the limit of our prosperity. The Lord can bless a little and blast a great deal. And if you are impatient with regard to God's timing, then you are proud. You're not humbling yourself. So you have to bring your heart low, not only with relation to the affliction itself, but also with regard to God's timing, humbly accepting it without knowing it, without knowing the timing. How long was Israel in Egypt? How long was Israel in the wilderness? How long did they wait for a king who would unite and defend them? How long did they wait in exile? How long did they wait for the Christ? The scriptures speak many times of the fullness of time, the, the pregnancy of time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The scriptures speak of God's timing which governs these things, all such things, and our lives too. And we must humbly accept the timing of God so that at the proper time, which he determines the appropriateness or the propriety thereof, he may exalt you. Thirdly, humbly accept how you are lifted up or the manner in which you are lifted up. Again, we'll look at the lifting up in a separate sermon. 
But let me say for now that there is a lifting up, but it may not always come in the form that you expected or the form or the manner that you wanted. Consider this, what if you own your own business and despite great diligence and effort on your part, your business fails and now you're in financial difficulty. What would be the ideal lifting up from this? You'd say, well, a bailout. You know, someone just gives me the money that I've lost uh, in my business. Sure, that would be a great lifting up, wouldn't it? But what if a paying job becomes available? But you have to work for someone else now. Would you say, there's no way. I had my own business. I was my own boss. I was my own man. I'm not going to work for someone else. No, no, no. That would be going backwards. That would be going down. I'm way up here. I'm only going forward. You don't have a job. You don't have money. No, I'm not taking that. If God lifts you up by providing employment, you take the employment. Even if it's not at the same level or, or, or manner that you wanted. Wait, I have to work hard to recover my losses? It wasn't my fault I lost them. Why should I have to work hard to recover them? Don't complain about the fact that you're being lifted up. You're being lifted up. But I, that's pride. If there is a lifting up, we must take it and be thankful for it, whatever it may be, rather than proudly refusing something we deem beneath us because we think we deserve more or better or other. Turn with me, please, to 2 Kings chapter 5, where we see a lifting up offered, but someone initially refusing it because they don't like the manner. They don't like how they are being lifted up. 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 10, where we find Elisha interacting with Naaman the Syrian. So this is a foreigner. He's from Syria, north of Israel, a government official. And Naaman is a leper. He's, he has leprosy. And he comes to Elisha for healing. 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan, the river, seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Naaman was humbled, but initially he, he refused the humbling because he didn't like the manner in which he was being lifted up. I don't know if you've ever been swimming in a lake or a river, but some of them are rather unpleasant because they're very mucky and muddy. And you walk into the lake and you're 
feet sink into muck. Your toes are in the mud. And some people think it's delightful because, you know. <laughs> but it's not. There are sandy lakes, which are very nice, but then there are mucky, muddy lakes. And clearly, as Naaman looks at the Jordan, he's saying, uh, we have nice, clean rivers in Syria. If, if it's a matter of washing in rivers, can I just go to the clean one? But Elisha said, no, this river, the Jordan River, the one you don't like, wash in that one seven times and you'll be clean. You'll be clean. Listen, Naaman, you will be clean. And that's what the servants came to him and wisely said. Didn't he say, just do this and you'll be clean? But if you don't like the manner of your lifting up, how foolish would that be? It's pride. It's beneath me, this dirty river. It's beneath me to work for someone else now. I don't like the manner of my lifting up. We need to humbly accept the manner in which God lifts us up. Fourthly, humbly accept the degree to which you are lifted up. Or if you want a little better alliteration, we had the manner, now the measure. Humbly accept the degree to which or the measure to which you are lifted up. It always surprises me the human body's ability to recover and recuperate after injury or illness. But there are some sicknesses or wounds that leave us permanently affected or even disabled in certain ways. And if you suffered from an illness and you recovered, but you recovered partially but not fully, would you complain and moan? I was in the hospital for three days when I was 11. My brother hit me in the head with a baseball bat, and it permanently affected my vision in one of my eyes. But I can see. <laughs> Under certain circumstances, I don't see very well, but I can see. And I praise God that I can see. I'm still able to drive. I'm still able to do the things that I need to do. So it would be foolish of me to say, ah, my right eye doesn't see very well. I mean, that's true. But God preserved my life. I could have died. It was an accident, by the way. It's important that I add that. <laughs> He'll be here later this month. So you can ask him. Or next month. Uh, he, he saved my life and my vision. Should I complain because I have deficient vision in one eye? No. Some people lose uh, speech capacity or, or movement of their body, and then they regain it slowly or partially, but maybe not completely. And yet you're still able to speak, or perhaps a leg is hurt and I can still walk, I just can't run like I used to. Would you groan and complain, oh, I used to be such a good runner, but now I can't run the way, or oh, I used to, to be able to do this, but now I can't, and so on. Those things may be true, but don't hum humbly accept the measure, the degree to which God has lifted you up. Let me read to you from, you can turn there if you like, Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. The Israelites are in the wilderness. Numbers 11, 4 through 6, and it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, 
the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Let's be honest about several things. First, walking in the Sinai wilderness would not be fun. Two, a no-meat diet, oof, is just, I'm sorry for any of you that choose to do that. Third, onions and garlic are very good. (laughs) But let's be honest about something else. Onions and garlic with whips and slave masters and no onions and no garlic with no whips and no slave masters. Which one is better? (laughs) You see, the no onions and no garlic with no slave masters and no whips is a lifting up from the onions and garlic with whips and slave masters. But they don't like the degree to which they've been lifted up because there's no onions and no garlic, just manna. You see, God lifted them out of slavery, literally. And he gave them the plunder of the riches of Egypt and their very lives and their freedom and a a good land to go to. But all they can think about is onions and garlic. Manna with no whips is better than onions and garlic with whips. We see here it's discontentment, isn't it? And discontentment at its root is pride. I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve other. And to be discontent is to refuse to humble ourselves and therefore refuse the lifting up that God gives to the humble. How do we humble ourselves by accepting the degree or the measure to which God has lifted us up. Similar to the financial situation I mentioned earlier, no, I won't take that job because I'll be making less than I was making before. Okay, but you can buy food and you can work up from there. It's a start. Don't refuse that because you want more, you think you deserve more. Don't be proud about the manner. Don't be proud about the measure. Fifthly, and lastly, be diligent and persevering. How do we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? Through diligence and perseverance. We need to be careful not to think that humbly accepting God's providence leads to inactivity, just sitting and waiting, doing nothing. I've lost my job or I've lost my business. I guess I'll sit here and wait for a new job. Good luck. (laughs) That's not going to happen. You need to say, my job is to get a job. I'm going to work really hard at this job until I get a job. That is the way. And then you pray to God, God lift me up by giving me success in my search for a job. His lifting up is often in, comes through blessing our efforts our diligence, and our perseverance. Peter, just not long before this in in his letter, in chapter 4, verse 19, said, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The way in which we entrust our souls to God is by persevering in obedience unto him. The way in which we humble ourselves under his mighty and wise hand of affliction 
is through diligence and perseverance in continuing on as he has commanded us, and even diligence and persevering in attempting to resolve the afflictions he has permitted in our lives. And notice that word resolve. I don't mean avoid, I mean resolve. Because his manner of lifting us up is often by blessing our efforts to resolve the afflictions he has permitted or sent in our lives. If you're sick, do you simply wait for God's timing in your own mind? Or do you do what you can to get well and to stay well and ask God to bless your efforts to be healed and to stay healthy? You have to be diligent and persevering in your health. You have to be diligent and persevering in your vocation, in your breadwinning. If there is someone in your life that's difficult and you think they're difficult, maybe they think you're difficult. If you have conflict with someone in your life, maybe they're an affliction to you. Let's presume that, that you're innocent and that the other person is an affliction to you. Maybe it's a coworker who just provokes you just so unnecessarily. Why, why would they treat me this way? This is so stupid. But they afflict, they, they provoke. They're just mean or a boss in a similar way who's just overbearing and unnecessarily difficult I will gladly do my work, and I'll do it to the best of my ability, but you're making my work harder. Maybe someone who's, who's uh, afflicting you in that way, a, a difficult person. It could be a spouse, a child, a family member, a neighbor, where there's personal conflict, affliction that's not a thing but a person. Do you just avoid that person and pray that God changes them? Well, in some cases, that may be what is necessary, but at least on your side, you need to do what is within your power to be kind and hardworking or forgiving and patient. You don't say, well, I just humbly accept that I don't get along with this other person. You do what is within your power to be kind. You do what is in, within your power to resolve. Humbly accepting God's providence does not mean that you do nothing by way of attempting to remove it. Humility is not inactivity. And humbly accepting God's timing is not just, well, sit and wait, sit and wait, sit and wait, sit and wait. There's an irony here. Namely, you can end up with two people who are both doing nothing under affliction, but for very opposite but, but equally wrong reasons. You can have the first person who does nothing. They refuse to humble themselves. I shouldn't have to deal with this. This shouldn't be happening to me, and they do nothing. They're proud and foolish and inactive. And then you have someone who says, I humbly accept the providence of God and I will wait for him to lift up this affliction. And they do nothing. Both are inactive, both for the wrong reasons. Go get a job, go to the doctor, <laughs> repent of your sin, go speak to that person. So humility does not lead to inactivity. And in each of these cases, the person does nothing. One is defiant, one is compliant, but both are doomed to sit idly in their own misery. Humble yourselves by diligently and perseveringly seeking to resolve and overcome afflictions in your life. As we said, the way out is the way through. Don't raise your fist in pride. Don't twiddle your thumbs in inactivity. Be perseveringly diligent in seeking to overcome the, the afflictions that God has permitted or sent in your life. Well, in conclusion, 
we've considered why we should humble ourselves because of God's mighty hand, because he opposes the proud, because it's the only way to the lifting up. And we've considered how, bring our hearts down to the level of our afflictions, accept God's timing, accept the manner in which and the measure to which God lifts us up. And we have to be diligent and persevering. Now, it makes me somewhat uncomfortable to start and finish a sermon having said very little about our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I ask you to bear with that, understanding first that when we're given a command, it is important to focus on that command as a command and how we ought to obey it in the scriptures. So it's not wrong to dedicate study to one of God's commands here. But I also want you to understand that it's when we look at the lifting up that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, shines oh so brightly in our eyes. And that's, it's really one really long sermon. Remember I said that? So Jesus is in this sermon. We just haven't got to that part of the sermon yet. And in the last place, I would ask you to just be patient with that because we see Jesus Christ uh, in the bread and the wine of which we will partake in just a moment. So don't think of this as a self-help sermon that's just all about commands. It is all about God's command, but not by way of self-help, but humbling ourselves as we wait for that lifting up that ultimately we receive in Jesus Christ and will most certainly receive in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is a lifting up and that it will come at the proper time according to your wisdom. We pray for patience and we pray for humility. We also humble ourselves under your mighty hand and we ask you to help us to do so better and to do so more to grow in humility and the exercise of humility. Please bless us, we ask, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.